you may be seated. We're gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses present to unite this couple in holy matrimony. It was God who invented marriage. It happened early in creation. God made the man. He sculpted him out of the dust of the ground, then blew the breath from himself into the man. And the Bible says man became a living person. But as God had looked upon his creation, each time when he made something, he would note that it was good. Time after time, the Bible says God saw that it was good. There was only one occasion, however, when God looked upon what he had done, and he said, not good. And that was when Adam was alone. I didn't catch God by surprise. It, it wasn't good that Adam should be alone. God knew that. He just wanted Adam to know that it wasn't good for him to be alone. So the scripture says that what God did was he performed the first surgery. He took a rib from the side of Adam, and from that rib he made a woman. Now, it's kind of humorous the way God did that. He could have chosen all kinds of ways to have made a woman. He spoke and the world came into existence. There was a, a method to his design. He took a part of a man to signify that man and woman are the same in the sense of God's creation. And what he did was he took a bone from his side, not a bone from his foot, for the woman is not to be walked on. Nor did he take a bone from his head, for the woman is not to dominate the man. But he took the bone from Adam's side, showing, of course, that bone closest to his heart, showing that man and woman would walk side by side in, in an equal partnership. And then the Bible says that God brought Eve to Adam, and it appears that God himself performed the first wedding ceremony. We find this verse in Genesis chapter 2. I think God spoke these words as he performed the ceremony. And then they resonate in the Gospels. Jesus repeated them. And then later on in the church epistles. For God was just showing that his plan for marriage is the same throughout the ages. Here are the words. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, which probably flipped Adam out because he didn't have father and mother. But God, this is God's plan. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now, the Hebrew word for cleave that God used there means to be glued together. You know, if you took two pieces of paper and you glued them together really well, you couldn't separate the pages without tearing both pieces of paper. That's what God said. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And because you have appeared before me today to unite your lives, to join your lives, to become one person in holy matrimony, you will now... Take your vows, and I ask you to decide that by joining your right hands. Would you repeat after me, please? I promise. Hey, have you ever thought about the marriage vows? You know, it's interesting. We prepare for all kinds of things when, when a couple is about to get married, don't we? There's the caterer to think about, the decorator, the church to get lined up, the flowers, the wedding cake, the dresses, the tuxes. I, I think it's interesting when people get ready to get married, they plan for all kinds of things. Many times, however, they don't put too much attention on the most important thing of all. I wonder how many couples sit down the night before they get married and say, tomorrow we're going to stand before God, our families, and a host of witnesses, and we're going to promise our love to each other. Now, I think the reason why a lot of times people struggle to put significance on that is most people have the idea that marriage is a contract. And in our culture today, marriage is entered into easily and it's left easily. The idea is it's something like a contract. And we have a saying, don't we, about contracts? We say contracts are made to be what? 
broken. Contracts are made to be broken. And contracts have language. There are caveats. And if you get into a tight enough contract, most of the time, if you're willing to pay some money, you can get out of a contract. I think that's what many people think about when it comes to marriage. I'm going to try to find a person that I really want to spend some time with. I'm going to link up with them. I'm going to have a contract with them. And then if it doesn't work out, then we're going to see who gets the house and who gets the car and who gets the kids. And then we're going to tear the paper and we're going to start over again. Do you know that right now in America, 50% of marriages end in divorce? And by the way, I know that some of you have gone through this. And if anything I say today makes you think back about something that went wrong in the past and, and if you feel like, well, man, Mark, you're trying to make me feel guilty, could I just tell you that's the last thing on my mind today? And if you're new to New Spring, I think the New Spring people would tell you, I don't motivate through guilt. I mean, thankfully, we have a God who is the God of second chances. And so if you listen to this today and something gets a little close to home, makes you feel a little edgy, please don't feel that way. I mean, if you've, if you've made a mistake, tell God you made the mistake, learn from it, dust off your pants, and get back into life. But I do want to talk for a few moments. Couldn't we just talk openly about the fact that something is wrong in a nation where 50% of marriages ends in divorce? It's been a long time since I've been in school, but I think 50 is failing, isn't it? And so what's going wrong? What's causing the problem? I mean, I do think we ought to ask that question. What, what's the deal? Why, why, why are so many people who are in love, who, who walk down an aisle and stand before a preacher, or stand before a judge, and they make promises... Why then does it not work out? Well, after pastoring for 30 years and talking to a lot of couples, I hear one answer more than any other. It goes something like this. Mark, I married the wrong woman. I don't know how it happened. My mama liked her. My friends liked her. I thought she was, I thought she was hot. And I, I just married her. But man, after we got married, it's like she turned into something else. And I didn't know her. And I just... I don't know. I got fooled. I got deceived. I married the wrong woman. But I tell you what, Mark, I've learned my lesson. I'm smart now. I'm wised up. And the next time I get married, I'm going to figure it all out. I'm going to marry the right person. Or a lady will say, I don't know how it happened, Mark. I, I, I just dated him and he made me laugh. And, and I thought, you know what? The biological clock is ticking and, and nobody else has asked me for a while. And so I, I thought it was, I, I'll make it the right marriage. I'll make him the right guy. You know, he, he just needs a good woman. He just needs my touch. And once I marry him, he's going to be the right guy. But, you know, I must have got a dud. <laughs> because he just, it just, he's just dense. I married the wrong guy. But i got to figure it out now. Because next time, I'm going to marry the right guy. Now, I have to be honest with you. This came to me while I was mowing my grass this week. Great revelations come to me when I mow my grass. I don't know why that is. I have my iPod on and my, you know, sound deadening headphones on, and I'm, I'm mowing. I'm thinking to myself, you know what? If that's true, we're in great shape now. Did you know that? Darn no more marriage problems. Because if 50% of marriages have already ended in divorce, and the people know they married the wrong person, and now they know how to find the right person, we're all settled now. Because by this point, all the right people have found each other, and all the wrong people have found each other. That's just statistically necessary. And even the wrong people are better off because they have something in common with the person they're married to. They're both married to the wrong person. And you know I'm kidding with you, don't you? Because I've got to tell you the honest truth. It's not funny at all. I've seen marriages break up, and I thought the two people, the husband and the wife, were the greatest people in the world. I thought it was a great woman, a great man. I thought, man, I'm listening to these people, and these are awesome people. 
These are people with character. These are people with skills. These are people with gifts. And I like both of them. I can get along with both of them. I just don't know why they can't get along with each other. I think, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm broaching on a tender place for some of you, but I think that there are people who get divorced, and they were the right people. They were the right, they were the right one for each other. So what's going wrong? Well, I think to some degree, you don't have to look any further than the wedding vows. Because think for a moment about the wedding vows. You know, if you stood before a minister or a judge or a justice of the peace or whoever you got married in front of, for those of you who are married, chances are there were words spoken like this, like love, honor, cherish, keep to thee only, as long as we both shall live, right? Weren't those the kinds of words that you heard? I want you to think about something for a moment. Do you know I have never heard the word if in a wedding ceremony as far as vows go? I promise to love you if. And yet I have the feeling that's how what causes a lot of people to break up. You know, they're saying, well, I, I would love her if she fulfilled me sexually. I, I would love him if he had, he had a better career track. I, I, would, I would be faithful to her if she still looked like she did when she walked down the aisle. I would still be faithful to him if he, if he fulfilled me and made me feel wanted. Vows don't work like that. There are no vows that say, I will if, I do if. Or there are no vows that say, I will when. Well, I'll start being the husband I should be when she starts being the wife she should be. Or I'll start being the wife that respects my husband when he starts being somebody who is worthy of my respect. Do you realize the vows are all about what we bring? You know, whenever I perform a wedding and I have a couple standing before me, I do short weddings. Most of my weddings last about 20 minutes. I tie a tight knot and then we get out of there and go eat cake. (laughs) I've been to too many hour and a half weddings. It makes me want to chew the wallpaper off the wall. (laughs) And I want to say to the minister, man, if you can't tie a knot faster than that, you just didn't go to Boy Scouts or something. But But I notice when I, when I do a wedding, I mean, I just look at the guy and I say, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? And do you promise? And I look at her and I say, do you promise? And it's not like we have a whole rank of attorneys up here who are saying, now, I, don't, I think before you say that you will, you need to find out what you're going to get from that. And you need to get this in writing. Man, a wedding would take forever under that basis. Vows are all about what you bring, not about what you get. When I talk to people who are ready to end a marriage, oftentimes they'll say something to me, I'm not getting what I think I should get. Isn't that true? I mean, you got friends. You got friends who talk to you about their marriages. How many times do you hear, I'm not getting what I should get? Now, I'm not talking about infidelity. I'm not talking about if there's any kind of abuse. I mean, really, if you're in that kind of situation, you need to get out. That's a different kind of thing. I'm just talking about stuff not going well in a marriage. And so many times people say, well, I just married the wrong guy. And I'm not getting the support. I'm not getting what I need to get from him. I'm not getting, I'm not getting the sex that I need to get from her. I'm not getting the attention that I need to get from her. I, I'm not getting what I need to get. So because I'm not getting what I need to get, I'm going to go back out into the open market and I'm going to find somebody who is going to give me what I want to get. But the vows aren't about what you get. The vows are about what you bring. 
a man and a woman stand before a minister and they promise. They say, I do, I will, or whatever that guy asks them to say. They say, I will do it. I will bring what I promise to bring. And it's not that I'm going to bring it if or I'm going to bring it when. I'm bringing it. But something's not going right. What is it? If you have your Bibles today, look in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, which I think is a definitive text in the Bible about husbands and wives. And if you don't have it, it's okay. These scriptures will be up on the IMAG. But God here is going to talk to husbands and he's going to talk to wives about how to have a great marriage. Now, I know from the moment, just take a time out for a little bit. I know that some of you are single here today and you're saying, well, Mark, I don't know if this really applies to me. If you're single, many of you will be married. And even if you won't be, everybody here today loves somebody who's married. And you talk to friends. And you talk to people who are going through a lot of tough times. So this is for everybody here today. God is going to, like, boil it down to one thing. If you're married and you want to have a great marriage, God's going to just hand you the key right now. He's going to, like, reach out to you wherever you are, and God's going to say, here it is. Here's what makes it work. Further, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, chances are you don't use the word submit very much. Submit means to put the other person first, to give up your own interests for the other person. Now, look at at what it says to wives. Verse 22, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's Jesus. So what... Think about this. If, if you're married, you're a woman here today, what, what the Lord is saying to you is, look, you're, you're, treat your husband like you would treat Jesus. <gasps> but Mark, I'm not married to Jesus. I know that. <laughs> you say, Jesus is from heaven and my husband is from... Don't finish it. Now, when God put that in the Bible, he knew your husband wasn't Jesus. (laughs) Trust me. But I want you to think with me for a moment. If if every once in a while, you know, somebody will come in here who's well-known, high-profile person, walk in, everybody will turn around and say, look, she's here or he's here. I want you to imagine what would happen in this service if all of a sudden Jesus walked in those back doors. Son of God, King of glory, Lord of lords. Are the one we've been singing about. I can tell you what will happen. First off, I'll be off the stage in a heartbeat and say, we have a guest speaker here today. <laughs> we were going to talk about love affair, but we're going to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. <laughs> but Jesus did this when he was on the earth. And let's just say he's walking up and down through the congregation here today, and he comes to a lady here who's married, and he says to her, hey, I'm going home with you for lunch today. Now, some of you ladies are thinking, what's the house like? <laughs> but he did that. He would just go to people and say, hey, I'm coming to your... Jesus hung out with ordinary people. And so if he came to you and said, if he said to you, ma'am, can I come home and have dinner with you today? You'd say, absolutely. Now, I know what would happen in my house. You have to understand that in my home, the weekend is just really challenging. By the time this is over, I've had three weekend services. Mary Alice has been in starting point. She's in discovery today. We are just toasted when when Sunday is over, and we don't ever do Sunday lunch very big. We just kind of like sandwiches, enough food to survive and take a deep breath, you know, to recover from the weekend. We just make Sunday lunch as simple as possible. But I know how much my wife loves Jesus. And if Jesus came to Mary Alice and said, I'm going home with you for lunch, I know that the next piece of paper in my hand is a shopping list for Dylan's. 
That's right. Because Mary Alice is going to say, you know, I want you to go get some steak, and I want you to get some lobster tails, and I want you to get some potato salad and chocolate cake and all the stuff that I like that I know Jesus would like. And so (laughs) here's what I know. Here's what I know. He would get her best. Wouldn't he get yours, lady, wife? Wouldn't he get your best? You'd say, Lord, don't sit in that chair over there. I mean, it'll tip with you. Come over here, and I want you to sit in the best chair. I mean, we would have everything perfect as much as we could get it for Jesus. He would get your best. You ready, husbands? Take your Bible one more time. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. And now let's look at verse 25. For husbands, this means... Love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Well, what's the church? You say, wow, man, Jesus did love buildings. No, church is not buildings. Church is a people. New Spring Church worships in this building. But you know what? If something, God forbid, should happen in this building, we'd worship someplace else. We could worship in a theater. We could worship out on the prairie somewhere. New Spring Church is people who are connected with Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. Jesus loved us. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. And what did he do? Did you catch that, guys? The Bible says he gave up his life for us. Now, you know Jesus didn't start in Bethlehem. We call that the incarnation, carnist flesh. That's when God the Son came in flesh. I mean, God came wearing a skin face when he was born in Bethlehem to Mary. But man, the Son of God had existed from eternity past. John chapter 1 says Jesus was involved in every act of creation and nothing was made without his touch. I want you to know that he is what heaven is about. He always was. I mean, you know, the Bible talks about people going to heaven, Moses and Abraham and and Ruth and, and Esther and all these great heroes and heroines of the faith. I want you to know that long before Jesus was ever born, when they got to heaven, man, they would see the Son of God, and it would be, Lord, can I get you something? Would you like something to drink? Would you like something to eat? Are you comfortable, Lord? I mean, whenever he walked down through the streets of heaven, it was like heaven stopped because he was everything. He's the man. And yet, because you and I were in trouble, because we had done sins that we can't afford to pay for, Sins that we would have to go to hell if we paid for them ourselves. We were in so much trouble that the Son of God, what did he do? He gave up his life. That life that he had in heaven where everything was great and where he was the star and where he was totally comfortable. He came to our world. He was born in a barn. He was laid in a feeding trough. He was wrapped up in the coarsest kind of clothing. He, he, he was in a family that was dirt poor. When Jewish families would take their eldest son to be circumcised, they would bring a lamb as a sacrifice. But the rule was if you were so poor you didn't have a lamb, you could bring a dove. And Jesus' family was so poor they had to bring a dove. And this one who had known only thrones and splendor and beauty of heaven came into our world and he saw the ugly side at its worst because he loved you and me. You talk about giving it up. He gave it up for us. Oh, I'll tell you, 
All I have to do is to see in my mind a picture of Jesus on a cross with the nails nailing his hands and his feet there and the thorns slicing through the skin of his scalp and the stripes that have been put there by the whip and the sword, the spear rather, hanging from his side. And I got to tell you, I don't ever question. Listen, I may question some things about God. I may question some things about the Bible that I don't understand. But I got to tell you, there's, never, there's one thing I never question. I never question that we got his best. I never question that we got his best. So husbands, here's what God is saying. You give up your life for her. I talk to guys who are young and single. Guys that are not so young and, sing, and single. You know, it's like, wow, I can't wait to get married. And then I talk to them a few weeks after they get married, maybe a month after they get married. And it's like, you know what? Single life was better than I thought it was. <laughs> I used to hang with my buddies, you know. If I want to go to a movie, no problem. If I want to work on a motorcycle, no problem. If I want to go hunting, you know. Nobody ever said, where are you going? And I hear guys, that it's like they have, you know, remorse over getting married. And it's like they're like back and forth. And I got one hand over here in the single life, and I got one hand over here with my wife, and I'm like jumping over here and being single with my buddies, and I'm jumping over here and being married with my wife. And my wife is saying, are you going out again? You're saying, I don't, I don't know why you're asking me that question. After all, the Bible says the husband is head of the home, so I could just go do anything I want to do with my buddies. God is so backward. Jesus gave up his life for us. He gave us his best. Could I ask you a question this morning? If you're married, who gets your best? Who gets your best? Does your career get your best? You say, hey, I got to make a living. No, you don't. All you have to do is live, die, and face God. Does your career get your best? How about your, your friends? people you hang with? Is it somebody that you've kind of started flirting with at the office and it's her voice that makes the butterflies in your stomach? Could it be somebody that you're talking to in the, on the internet? Could it be yourself? All I'm asking today is who gets your best who gets the stuff that is most important to you? Who gets your best? Isn't it interesting that when we're dating, the person we're dating gets our best? You know, when you're in what, we, what the old timers used to call courtship, that person gets our best. We're on our best behavior. We're putting our best foot forward. We're putting our best makeup on. We're wearing our best clothes. We're careful what we say because we're in that courtship phase. But then once we get married, there's a kind of odd thing that happens. All of a sudden, we begin to take that person for granted, and the person we were giving our best to now is beginning to get the leftovers. Dr. Ted Houston is at the University of Texas. He is a professor of human ecology and a professor of psychology, and he's doing some studies that's kind of setting the, the psychological and counseling world on his head. He, is just, he said that he can tell in the early years of marriage who's going to get divorced and who's going to be able to stay together. And that's kind of unusual because up to this point, the lion's share of psychology is focused on people who are already having conflict and already having problems. And the dominant theory in counseling has been we help people resolve their conflicts. And if you can resolve the conflicts, voila, you can have a strong marriage again. But down at the University of Houston, Dr. Houston is not focusing on conflict resolution. 
He's focusing on something else. And he's astoundingly successful in predicting who's going to stay together and who's going to get divorced. And everybody's kind of like going to Texas to hear what he has to say. You want to hear this heavy concept that he's got? It goes something like this. And I know I'm being simplistic, but this is pretty much in germ what it is. He said that when people are, you know, in the early stages of their relationship, they tend to value each other highly. And he said couples that don't make it so well after they get married, they stop valuing each other as highly. And they begin to be critical. They start looking, a husband will start looking at his wife through the filter of criticism. And he'll, he'll start finding fault with her. Or she'll start finding fault with her husband because she begins to look at him through the filter of a lower value. He said couples that make it, on the other hand, are couples that even though they begin to discover things about each other that they don't necessarily like, they still continue to value each other highly. You know, that does make sense, doesn't it? Because you know what? When we're dating, what are we looking for? We're looking for the things that we have in common. You've seen that commercial on television where you can, like, send your profile to some kind of service, and they'll evaluate you, and they'll put you together. They'll, like, do the 29 things of compatibility and figure out who you belong with. We want to find people who are like us. So in courtship, we're looking for those ways in which we're alike. We want to find somebody like us. And then after we get mad, we're mad because we find out they are like us. And what Dr. Houston is saying is this. He's saying the couples that, that are successful are the couples that even though they find out they have stuff that makes life a little bit awkward or difficult, they just continue to value each other. They've set their course to look at each other through the filter of the most positive light. We all think we're objective when we evaluate people, but we're not objective. Not really. Not if I know you. You know what? If I like you, I'm going to maximize your good points. I'm going to minimize your faults. If you're my friend and I like you, you do something wrong, I'm going to say, well, you know what? We're all human. But if you do something right and you're successful, if I like you, man, I'm just going to even blow that out of proportion. If I don't like you, you can do something that's really great, and I'll say, well, man, you know, even Blind Hog finds an acre every once in a while. By the way, there's nobody that I don't like. I just want you to know that. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. If, if I like you, I'm going to look at you in the most positive light. I'm going to interpret every, I'm going to interpret the way you look. I'm going to interpret the way you talk. Even if you're having a bad day, I'm going to ride it off because I'm looking at you through the filter of the fact that I like you. If I don't like you and I've decided that you're a person who's not worth my attention, I'm going to look at your good points and minimize them. I'm going to look at your bad points and I'm going to maximize them. That's all Dr. Houston is saying. He's saying the couples that make it have chosen to look at each other in the most positive light. Well, kudos to Dr. Houston and hook them horns. I, I just want you to know that long before Dr. Houston was on to this, God was. God was saying, husbands, you give it up for your wives. Wives, treat your husbands like you were treating Jesus or like you would treat Jesus. Now, the reason why I stress this today is this. Oftentimes, when a couple gets married, they'll begin to find fault with each other. And what I've learned in life is that if I evaluate, I communicate. I may not articulate, but I'm going to communicate. Now, I tell my wife every day that I love her. 
And I hope that she gets my best. I believe she does. I love being pastor of a church, but I've always told the church all 22 years, my family comes first. But even if I didn't tell Mary Alice I loved her, I believe she would know it. Because you can't evaluate with anyone you're around for a long time without communicating it. If I evaluate, I communicate. If I believe Mary Alice is the most beautiful woman in the world, and I do, if I believe she is everything to me, that I don't need any other woman, if I look at her and say, you are my life partner, you are my best friend, if when I look at her, I evaluate what she says, what she does, and how she looks through, the pris- through that prism, Mary Alice will know that. If, on the other hand, I decide, you know what, I married the wrong person, I don't know why I got stuck, man, just went wrong for me, I don't know, she's always doing the same thing all the time, I don't know why she can't figure it out, why does she think like a woman, and I'm fortunate enough to think like a man. I, I'm, if, if, I'm, if I'm looking at her like that, I may never say anything, but I'll still communicate. It'll be tacit, it'll be vis- facial or whatever, I'll still communicate that. Now, why is that important? Because it works like this. There's going to be a third response to that. If I evaluate and I communicate, my wife will respond to that. If I think Mary Alice is the most wonderful woman in the world, that she's beautiful, the most beautiful woman in the world, and I communicate that, and if I say to her, I don't know, I couldn't live life without you, you are my everything. If I say that to her and if I communicate that to her, what's her response going to be, ladies? She's going to say, I want to be that person. If, on the other hand, I communicate to her that she's a failure and everything she touches doesn't work, after a while, she's going to look at me and say, why try? See how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy? If your husband knows that you're his biggest fan, that you pull for him, that you think about him, you pray for him during the day, and that he's a success, even if he has a bad day, and his boss tells him he's a jerk, and all the people who work for him tell him he shouldn't be in leadership, if he knows that you still love him and you care for him and you're so happy to see him, I'll tell you what, he will charge hell with a squirt gun for you. That's a fact. If, on the other hand, you think he's a loser and your mother was right and you should not have married him in the first place, (laughs) and he knows that, he'll get to a place where he says, why try? You say, well, Mark, my criticism is going to help him sharpen up. I don't think so. That's what leads me to the second question. If the first question is who gets your best, the second question is do I make it easy or do I make it hard for my partner to give me his or her best? I've never questioned that I got Mary Alice's best. In 30 years of marriage, I've never questioned that. I may have questioned what she thought about something. I may have questioned her judgment, but I've never questioned that I've gotten her best. But the question I have to ask myself is do I make it easy or do I make it hard for her? That comes down to the way we appear. You know, if we only like spruce up when we're going out and we never spruce up for our partner, our husband, or our wife, that communicates something. I mean, even even comes down to the way that we take care of ourselves physically, the way we take care of our bodies. If it's like, you know, because am I the only one? And, 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 and am I, I, maybe I'm not, maybe I am, but am I the only one who, who runs into somebody who's getting divorced and I see them like six months later and they've lost 30 pounds, they have a new waistline, new clothing, sporting a tennis racket? Am I the only person who's seen that? 
Because when you say that, you want to say to yourself, I mean, you never say it to them, but you think to yourself, you know, if you'd tried this back while you were married, things might have been different. What we communicate in a moment like that is that we're all about pursuit, and once we get married, and we're going to let it all hang out. Do I make it easy, or do I make it hard? Is my attitude, is my attitude in my marriage, am I making, it, it, does the attitude that I have when I come home from a bad day, am I making it easy for my else to give me her best, or am I making it hard for her to give me her best? Well, i got to close this right now. I'll pick it up next weekend. But for all of you who are husbands today, could I encourage you to have a fair, an affair with your wife? Could I encourage you to have an affair with your wife? Ladies, could I, could I encourage you to have an affair with your husband? You know, because when people get into affairs, what they're doing is they're saying, wow, I'm going to find this exciting person. You know, it's in the eye of the beholder. Back when I was a kid, guys that were always after women were called skirt chasers. It's okay for you to be a skirt chaser if your wife is in the skirt. You say, well, Mark, that's easy for you but you don't know my husband. You're right, I may not. You say, Mark, listen, you talk about me giving my best, you don't know my wife. You don't know what a tongue she has. You don't know how mean she is. You don't know how vindictive. You don't know how scheming my wife is. Well, maybe I don't. But I'll tell you what I do know. In 30 years of working with couples, year in and year out, I've seen a failing marriage start off on the route to a successful marriage because one person decided unilaterally that her husband or his wife was worthy of their best. Maybe they're not worthy, but this is a decision that's made in the heart. I'm going to bring my best. Maybe you don't deserve it. I'm going to leave that to God. But you know what? God said, I should do what I do like I'm doing it for Christ. So you know what? You may be, and I hope you don't use this language, but you may say, my husband is a total jerk, but I'm going to treat him like Jesus. My wife is just a mess, but I'm going to love her like Jesus loved me. It's hard to fight with somebody who thinks you're the greatest person in the world. So I want to encourage you today. Ask yourself the question, who gets my best? Do I make it easy or do I make it hard for my partner to give their best? And determine you're going to have an affair with your husband or your wife and let God work. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just asking for someone here today, maybe many, who right now are struggling with this, and saying, wow, I just don't know if I have the strength to do this. Father, I pray that you would help them realize that it's only through Christ that they'll have the strength to do this. Lord, for those who are beginning to like look at themselves a little bit and realize that maybe the problem might not just be 
with their partner, but it could be inside their own heart. Father, I pray you just give them comfort in knowing that you help us deal with those problems that we have in our lives. I pray for every marriage here. I pray for every single person who will be married. I pray for those, Lord, who've gone through a messy breakup and are struggling to deal with what has happened and know how to face the future. God, I pray you'll help every person here know that you're the God of restoration and second chances. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you're still bowing in prayer with me, please. You know, we talked about Jesus, and every weekend at New Spring, I talk to everybody about this. There's a line that separates the whole human race. That line is between those who have received Christ as Savior and those who haven't. The most important decision in your life, even more important than who you marry, the most important decision in your life is the choice to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. Because when Jesus comes into your life, He forgives your past. He promises you an eternal future. I mean, you can't live a perfect life, but He lived it for you. You don't want to pay for your sins, but He paid for them for you. He died in your place and rose from the grave. And He's alive in heaven now. And just like a bride is married when she says, I do, at the moment you're willing to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life, He comes in. It's a supernatural thing. It's a miracle. And all God's waiting for is a yes. If you've never asked him to come into your life, I want to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can pray it with me, or you can use your own words. God's just looking for a yes. God loves you so much. He gave you his best. Look at Jesus on the cross. That is God's best I believe if you were the only man or woman, boy or girl in the world, Jesus would have died for you. I know that. Would you ask him in? Would you give him a chance? Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. Come into my life. Please save me and forgive me. I trust you as my Savior and my Lord. In Jesus' name. If you did that today, would you do both of us a favor? Take your worship folder, and there's a, um, there's a place on there. There's, some, there's this field of boxes where you can check a box and say, I, Mark, I prayed with you to receive Jesus. And we've got a packet of information and, and stuff for you, some DVDs and great stuff to help you know what it means to know Jesus as Savior and how to take your first steps in following him. I want to send this to you. It won't cost you anything, I promise you. If you'll just give me an address with your card and drop it in the boxes by the back doors and the bottom of the staircases. Just say, Mark, I prayed with you to receive Jesus. And if you'll give me an address, I'll send it to you. If you don't want to wait for me to send it to you, you can go through those doors right through the middle there, right through that where the exit sign is, straight out through there as guest services. You can just take your card out there and, and the person will give you one and take it home with you today. We just want you to know Jesus and be sure of your relationship with him. You can also let us know other things on that card. Just a quick word about next week. I've been pastoring for 30 years and I've gotten to bring some great messages and some great talks that I believe they're really timely. Next weekend's talk, I think it's one of the most important of my entire career. It's called Before the Vow Breaks. If you want to know how to affair-proof, how to shatter-proof your marriage, next weekend at New Spring, it's going to be prime time. So please, Let me see you again next week. God bless.